0: Welcome to the You on the Camino podcast for and about first time pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, with your host, guide, and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Hi, everyone. This is Nancy with the Camino Experience, and I am so excited to be here with Amanda from Sydney. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Nancy. I'm so glad you agreed to join me to talk with us about your upcoming Camino. Will you start, Amanda, by telling us a little bit about your plans? What route you're walking, when you're going, where you're starting, and how long you'll be out there?
1: I'm doing the Portuguese Camino with a friend, and we leave Porto towards the end of September, and I'm actually doing a combination of routes. So we start off and we're doing the Senda Littoral, which takes us along the coast of the Duro River. We then join the coastal route. We then cross over and join the central route, and then we cross back at Pontevedra and finish by doing the spiritual route, which then takes us into Santiago de Compostela. Uh, We've allowed ourselves 14 days of walking, no rest days, but pretty steady walking most days. So we'll basically end up in uh, Santiago, probably sort of the first, the end of the first week of October or thereabouts.
0: That sounds like an amazing itinerary. Did you say you're starting in Porto? We are. Mm. Have you been to Porto before?
1: No, I haven't been to Portugal or Spain. So, in fact, one of the motivations for doing this Camino was to combine a sense of travel with physical exercise and a sense of exploration. So that actually it's, it's interesting you asked that question about whether well, I'd been to Porto. The original motivation for doing this Camino was quite different to what it ended up being later on. And the reason I mentioned that is because I first heard about this Camino probably about 10 years ago, but I was so busy with my work life, I just didn't give it another thought. And then probably about three or four years ago, um, my personal situation changed with my dad becoming very ill and getting very old, so I had to retire from my business. And I know it sounds really a bit pocus pocus but I had this calling, so to speak, and I thought, I'm going to do the Camino. And part of it was because my dad always encouraged me to do things while I was still younger and physically able. And at that time, two weeks Porto to Santiago de Compostela fitted in within a two-week time frame. So that's what I picked.
0: Oh that's perfect. I think you said hocus pocus.
1: Oh when I when I, I think there is some people who talk about uh, having the calling or yeah. receiving the calling and I thought oh that sounds a little bit weird. Don't you just go on a walking trip? And over time, my perception of the Camino has changed from being one of, let's do a lovely walk where we go into cathedrals and stay at little farmhouses and meet people, to one of, yes, we can do all of that, but let's also take advantage of the opportunity to explore a little bit about ourselves, do a little bit of reflection and introspection. And that's what I mean about some people not understanding this concept of getting the calling. And I don't tell my friends that because I think they will think that I'm a little bit weird as well.
0: So just internally, I felt that now's the time. I appreciate you explaining that because people who haven't yet walked the Camino may be a little leery of what they're calling a calling. It might feel a little funny and they might be like you're not certain you want to share it with your friends. They might not want to share it with their friends. I will tell you, though, that anyone, well, maybe not anyone, most people who have already walked the Camino completely understand what you just said.
1: hmm Well, if I can take a step back, my original plan, it was to go next to me in 2023, and I organized with a, a different friend to go with him. And then for some bizarre reason, I woke up in probably... May, which would have been the first anniversary of my dad's death. And I rang him and I said, Chris, I've got to go. I've got to go now. I can't explain why, but we've got to go. Can you come in September? And unfortunately he couldn't come. So I started planning on my own. And that's what I mean about having this calling. There was this urge to do
0: it now and bring it forward. And I can't explain why. I'm not sure you have to. I think it can go unexplained. And perhaps when you finish walking, you'll be better able to explain it to yourself.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That really resonates with me, actually, Amanda, from what I've seen and heard from other people. Okay. Yeah, it really does. A calling. I would like to ask you to imagine that you're in Porto at your starting point and your your bag is loaded, you're ready to go, You're looking out at the trail before you. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What kind of ideas do you have about what's ahead?
1: A whole mixture of emotions. I I think there's genuinely a sense of excitement and anticipation. It's about the the unknown. I think there's a feeling of anxiety is too strong a word, but perhaps a feeling of trepidation, thinking, Am I going to be able to do this without getting too lost? Uh, I think there'll be feelings of relief that I've actually finally made it to Porto and we're starting on this journey. So, a whole mixture of different things, but overall, a very positive
0: expectation. And will you have any time in Porto before you begin walking?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Coming from Sydney and going across to Europe, there's a, it's a huge flight and also significant jet lag. So, I'm actually going with a a girlfriend now, and we've decided that we'll spend a couple of days in Lisbon and a couple of nights in Porto, because I'm not sure when I could ever get back to Portugal, and it would be a shame not to explore a little of the wonderful things that Portugal has to offer. So we'll use that time to get over the jet lag and do a little bit of exploring.
0: Now, a lot of people go to walk the Camino on their own. They go on solo trips and they just pack up and go. And you going with a girlfriend is a different experience than that. And a lot of people do that as well. How did you come to the decision to walk with a friend? This is a
1: bit of a convoluted story. So I need to step back a little bit to probably about May in 2018 when I started to feel, oh, this Camino is starting to intrigue me. I asked a couple of friends if they were interested in joining me and they said no. They thought it was too far to go and they they were questioning their own abilities. So in 2019, I thought, I've just got to do this. And because I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese, because I'm challenged navigationally, I thought maybe the best thing to do was go by myself but use the services of a company So I'd be doing a self-guided trip and this company would organise luggage transfers and accommodation and provide route notes. and I thought doing that I'd be pretty safe. I must admit my husband was a bit concerned about me travelling to these strange countries on my own, even though I explained to him that there are lots of pilgrims at various times, and once they see that little shell on your pack and, you know, the little iron-on transfer saying I'm a Camiga they'll probably extend the hand of friendship. So I thought I was okay. But I I happened to mention to this friend of mine that I was going to go next May, but the friend I was going with pulled out. So now I'm doing it on my own. And she said, I'll come with you if that's okay. So what's actually happened now is a solo trip has turned into uh, a trip for the two of us. And uh, we're doing some of the planning or we have been doing some of the planning together. You mentioned the... Using the services of a company. And it was really interesting because I questioned my own ability to begin with to travel solo. And that's why I thought, yeah, I'll use the service of a company. And that was, I was supposed to travel in May 2020, but COVID put pay to that. And that has had a silver lining in it because I didn't know when I could next go. So I used all this available time to start doing more of my own research and, you know, do things like speak to people on the various Facebook forums, do a lot of reading, go to the, there's a group in Sydney called the Sydney Pilgrims Group. So I went along to a couple of meetings with them. And over time, I realized that I could actually probably do this trip by myself. I didn't actually need the services of of a company. And as I got further and further into the research, I realised that the companies had a limitation. As as helpful as they were, they basically can only help so far if you want to do the central route and the coastal route, fantastic because they've got established relationships with accommodation centres and uh, luggage transport services. But once you start to do something a bit more customised, as I'm doing, which is incorporating the sender literal and the spiritual variant, the costs – Sort of blew out of proportion. And that's because as far as I know, they have to organize separate accommodation where they don't have established relationships and they had to organize or they would have to organize different transport arrangements. So I basically let the company go and just concentrated on, on doing the route myself.
0: What a brave step that is. Does that feel courageous or brave or did that just feel like, no, this makes sense and I got this?
1: No, it didn't feel brave or courageous. It just felt that this is what I needed to do to order in order to get the most fulfillment out of the journey. And once I had decided on those, those particular sections of the four different routes in Portugal, I was amazed at how many other pilgrims, when I was reading their stories on the different forums, how many have actually done what I'm doing. So I think I'm taking a lot of solace in the fact that it's been done before <laughs> i'm not going to be stuck out there on the limb hoping that i don't get lost no it's not courageous it's just what i wanted to do and it just fits in nicely
0: and i was reading a bit earlier what you sent me about your professional background and you've got some skills you've got some superpowers what what superpowers have you used in getting ready for your i mean no
1: i wouldn't describe them as being superpowers But I am a market researcher in terms of my background. As a consequence of that, I've had to do research, spreadsheets, uh, get used to interviewing people, writing reports, and that's enabled me to get organised relatively quickly and to help draw up timelines and investigate different accommodation options and also the different routes, as it turns out. That's how I ended up deciding that I wouldn't just do the coastal or the central or the combination of the two. And being able to do spreadsheets has been really great because we can look at scheduling, we can look at how many k's we're doing, how much it's going to cost, what, what accommodation options we've got in each town, what time. I mean, we're going to be fairly flexible in terms of what time we leave the accommodation each morning. But, yeah, I would say the spreadsheets and the ability to do research has been The most enabling skill that I have, but not a superpower, just a skill.
0: (laughs) You're very modest because there are plenty of people like myself who get very confounded with spreadsheets and all of that uh, type of organization in any particular way. I think you might be underestimating your powers.
1: (laughs) Just half of the course.
0: (laughs) Very good. The flip side of that, what has been the greatest challenge since you took on planning it yourself?
1: That's a really good question. I think the biggest challenge has been to, I guess, work out why it was that I didn't want to stick to what I would call the tried and true roots, i.e. the central and the coastal, and then working out, well, why is it that I didn't want to just do those two, and how would I then accommodate incorporating the trip down by the river and then doing the spiritual version, which they're not, not as common routes. I think that that challenge has been the biggest one. And so, for example, when you come out of the spiritual route to get up to, oh, I've forgotten the name, to get up to Padron, basically the alternatives are to do a very, very, very long walk or to get a boat from Villanova to Arausa. And for me, it was like, oh, am I going to do that boat? Because apparently the boats depend on the tides. So it might the boat might leave at 8 o'clock one morning. It may not leave until midday. And then after that, we've got a 28k walk to Santiago. So the challenges were more in terms of logistics once I had decided on the different routes that we were doing.
0: Well, and logistics of a place you haven't been before. If we said, Amanda, could you plan a walk for us around Sydney or close to your home? That might not be so hard, but someplace with, different names that are based in a different language and a place you've never been. And we're not sure how the trail will be marked and how will we find that. Those are some, some big challenges.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, friends of mine have said, oh, you know, how far is this walk? And I've said, well, doing the four stages that we're doing, it probably be about 300 kilometers. But knowing my navigational skills. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up doing 350 by the time we work out that we've taken the wrong route and then we have to come back and start again. And and I must admit, looking for those arrows, that really concerns me, particularly in the Portuguese segment where I've read that the arrows can be quite spaced far apart and you don't realise that you've not seen an arrow until maybe a kilometre and you've got to backtrack. So That's a a thing. And then also, as I said before, I can't speak Portuguese or Spanish. So asking for directions is a little bit of a source of concern for me.
0: I completely understand. As pilgrims, we rely on those trail markers on the arrows and the scallop shells. We rely on them. Yes. And fortunately, there are lots of other ways to help with navigation. Will you be carrying a smartphone with the data plan?
1: Definitely. I wait for the data plan. I'll just keep on using the the plan I have in Sydney because the company that, that I use has a very, I guess, generous overseas plan. So there's no need for me to change providers and get a new SIM card. So I'll do that. But also, I've downloaded Wise Pilgrims and also the Kamina Ninja app, although. Looking through the Camino Ninja app, it's probably not as appropriate for us just because we're taking different, we're going on different villages to and in different stages compared to what that app covers. So yeah, we'll do that. We'll use Google Maps along the way, and we'll we will rely on the kindness of strangers. I think if we're going in the wrong
0: way, and you will find the kindness of strangers. One of the things that I've observed is the local people want you to stay on the trail. Mm-hmm. It's not in anybody's interest to have pilgrims wandering off into the wilderness or in, you know, down the wrong street. Wilderness might be too, oh, too a bit of an overstatement for the Camino. One of the tricks that I do Amanda is when I'm not sure and I see a local, I just say hello in their language, hola or you know, I don't speak Portuguese either, and say Camino and I point <laughs> in the direction I'm going and that's it. That's my only word. And then they point me in the right direction. And I've noticed that the local people keep an eye out for the pilgrims. So if they see you getting ready to miss something, they'll call out to you and help you stay on track. It's in everybody's interest.
1: I've heard that. So as I said, I'm relying on the kindness of strangers in case we get lost.
0: You will definitely find it. There's a couple things I want to ask you about. The friend who you're traveling with, have you ever traveled with her before
1: no and in fact she was my physiotherapist and we've developed a friendship just over the last couple of years based on our mutual love of walking but aside from walking we don't really see each other socially we get on very well we give each other space but we realized that in order for this trip to work well we needed to establish a few ground rules ahead of the trip as opposed to making them up on the trip
0: very smart would you be willing to share with us your ground rules
1: oh sure sure so although we're traveling as friends we're not joined at the hips and by that i mean we're not doing everything together and in fact when i first mentioned to her that i was sitting here doing the camino she said to me uh are you expecting that we'll share rooms i said andrea after you spent the whole day with me, the last thing you want to do is spend the whole night with me as well. So no, it's probably best that we get our own rooms, um, given our ages, and also given the fact that we we're not don't know each other that well. So the first thing is, if we choose to walk faster or slower than the other person, then that's fine. We might agree that we'll see you in ten minutes, or you know, in in an hour at the next the first available cafe. Another rule is that if we meet somebody along the way and we feel like walking with them the next morning rather than each other, that's also fine. We also have this rule that if one of us gets really tired or sick, we have no hesitation in getting an Uber to get to the next village. And none of this, I don't I don't, need, I don't want to be a martyr, or I or I need to be a stoic, and so on. So it's really being sensible about health in our situation. And related to that, we've also said, and hopefully this doesn't—it doesn't come to this—but if one of us gets seriously hurt, for example, we trip and we—I don't know—break an arm or a leg or something like that. As a friend of mine did when he was talking on the phone and broke his shoulder. that the only requirement is really to to make sure that that person is, gets into hospital and settles safely, and then it's up to the non-affected person to decide whether she will continue on the way without feeling any sense of obligation that her trip needs to be compromised just because the hurt person can no longer continue in the the time frame. The other thing we said was if you don't feel like eating together, that's also fine. If you feel like one person wants to have hamburgers and the other person wants to have a paella, that's fine. And finally, and this has happened to us, if we want to have a different accommodation experience, that's fine. So one of us wants to stay in a parador along the way. And in this particular town, there is the opportunity to stay in more of a farm stay accommodation. So we're elected to stay in different types of accommodation. So it's just about being flexible and within a schedule and not taking any changes or differences of opinion personally. It's not that I don't like what she wants to do and she doesn't like what I want to do and therefore I don't like that person. It's more about saying, well, this is what I'd like to do. Is that okay with you?
0: That sounds like a really solid foundation to start your walk with.
1: Well, I hope it works. We've gone away with other families, not walking, but going on family holidays. And we always had the, the rule that, that each family would eat breakfast separately because the last thing you want to do is wake up, go to breakfast and be happy, happy, happy. And we've found that that works really well. And so that We could meet together for lunch later in the day and have dinner together several nights a week. And just not having that pressure to be lovely and chirpy and happy and a good mood at breakfast made a huge difference to our holidays. They were quite similar sorts of principles.
0: I think I'm going to write those up and post them. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Just to share that, and I hope the people listening to this podcast episode can take that with them, because a lot of times people hesitate to go with a friend or go with a family member because they're afraid they'll lose the freedom that they perceive the Camino is offering them. And for some people, going solo is exactly the right choice. And every experience is valid and every experience is possible.
1: I agree. I agree
0: you also mentioned a bit about being navigationally challenged. Yeah.
1: And that is exactly why I've downloaded some apps. If I have to, I'll rely on uh, Google Maps to see us through. I think the thing that worries me a little bit about Google Maps is that when you type in two destinations, there is a tendency from what I understand to take us along, even though you put down, you want to go on a walking route. They might have us going on highways and things like that. And I think that that's the part that. It's not a concern, but it's just something that I want to try and avoid if I can and try and stick as much as I can to what the actual pilgrim route is as opposed to going on a road route between
0: villages. I agree with you. Sometimes what I do is I plug in Google Maps just to see where they would take me because I know, as an example, I know the Frances route really well. And so I know where the route goes. And then I check it to see if Google knows where I'm supposed to go just to play with it. But when you're off in a new land for the first time and you don't already know.
1: I think that's a really interesting point and an important point because, you know, when we were planning our route, on average, we're going to be doing between 20 and 25 k's a day but there are some days where we do as little as nine and another day where we're doing as much as 38 now under normal circumstances doing a 20k walk here in sydney where i know all the the roads i know how to get back it's relatively straightforward and easily doable and we can say okay we're going to walk at about four between four k's an hour and six k's an hour but i think when you're in a strange country you don't speak the language rate of travel is going to slow down considerably as we try and work out, are we going the right way? Have we taken the right turn? And I think that could sort of impact upon the overall enjoyment, like a great feeling, a great sense of adventure, but at the same time, I guess a feeling of hesitation, oh, no, I've done the wrong thing. So, anyway, I just mentioned that as, as um, I guess, as a point as to why the, the community might take us longer. Certainly in terms of time and definitely in terms of distance and what we're hoping to do is
0: It's a fair consideration. And if I may just share a couple of things related to that, when you walk 20 to 25 Ks in a day, you have all day, you have the entire day to do it. And so when you're walking at home and you're going for a 20 K walk, you're probably focused on finishing the walk, get started, do the walk, be finished. Part of the joy for me anyway on the Camino is enjoying the Camino route and enjoying the small towns and villages that it passes through and enjoying the the odd park bench that I can sit and watch people walk by. So there's a different focus, I think, in how you spend your time traversing 20 to 25 kilometers when you're on the Camino. And part of that, at least for me, is the point of it.
1: I think that's a really good point because the other thing too is I've never done that sort of distance day after day after day. I've done a couple of times, uh, a couple of trips where I might have done 25Ks one day and 50Ks the next day, but then I've just gone home, had a bath and said, well, that was pretty good fun. But the concept of doing 20 to 25Ks day after day after day, I'm realizing that the best way to achieve that with minimal injury is to make sure that we take lots of rest. It's not like, we have to churn out 20k's all in one go. If it takes us six hours to do it, then so be it, because it means that we're, we'll take time, take off our shoes and socks, and air our feet for a little bit. Maybe change socks, have a drink, have a snack, and then take take off again. It's not about getting from village to village in this shorter time. As
0: it's possible. not. And one of the things that pilgrims report they love the most about the Camino is meeting other pilgrims. And in my experience. Those stopping points are when you get to have those conversations and meet people. And not coincidentally, it's also one of the helpful things to avoid getting lost. Because when you get a group of five pilgrims together, for example, one might have one guidebook, one has another guidebook, one has this app, one has this app, and one has Google Maps. So you can confer and talk about the next arrow or the next scallop shell. Do you feel like we're going the right way? And that's part of the experience of the community of the Camino.
1: That sounds great. I'm so looking forward to that interaction with other pilgrims or peregriners, as they call them, along the way. That I think that's part of the whole Camino experience.
0: I think so. Many pilgrims would say that meeting the pilgrims and staying in the albergues in the shared dorms, those are the pilgrims' hostels, is absolutely essential to the pilgrim experience. You're choosing to stay at other types of places, which makes my Pilgrim Heart happy because I, for the first five years, I was on the Camino. I stayed in albergues and then I started upgrading to private rooms and it really improved the experience for me. It was a personal choice of honoring my needs. How did you come to the decision to stay in private rooms?
1: That was relatively straightforward. Both my friend and I are in our our mid-60s and the thought of sharing a dorm with 16 other people didn't really appeal to me very much. But perhaps more importantly, I got a bad back and a bad shoulder, and I needed to be certain that I could rest well each evening. And that meant choosing places that weren't dormitories. So we're not staying always in hotels. We're staying, we're doing, in Australia, I guess we'd call them farm stays. I think over there they call them casas, like houses or people's homes. And then just having a private room and then being able to unwind properly, certainly for me and I think also for my friend was a very important part of enjoying the Camino.
0: Do you feel like you're missing out on anything by not staying in the albergues?
1: I do. I do feel that uh, missing out on those communal meals will be a missed adventure and a missed experience. But I had to weigh out the benefits and... The weaknesses and for us the benefit of having private accommodation outweighed the opportunity or the benefit of having a community meal particularly or communal meal particularly if we would bump into people during the way and we could have lunch with them or agree to meet them later on for drinks after they'd had dinner. So we will still get that communal feeling. It's just not in an outbreak.
0: And I think one point that gets missed is that the people who stay in places with private rooms in the farm stays, and you're right, they're called, in Spain anyway, they're called Casa Rural, Rural House. In the hotels and in the Ostal, which is a small hotel, those places along the Camino, guess who's staying there? It's pilgrims. And so you'll be able to meet pilgrims and say, hey, we're going to go to dinner at this place. And some of these places even provide a community meal, a communal meal. So there still will be opportunities to share meals with people.
1: That's really good to know. In fact, a lot of the places that, that we've chosen to stay at have actually been used by other pilgrims. So it's going into those different forums that would say, when you're in Arcos, where do you recommend we stay? Or where do you think we should stay in Ponte de Lima you know that's not necessary an albergue so i can see your point lots of other pilgrims have um, decided to stay in hostels as well as small private hotels so i don't feel that I, I don't feel that i'm not being a genuine pilgrim by not staying in an albergue
0: it's a great myth to dispel
1: yeah and i i, re- I see it a lot where people say it's your camino you do what suits you
0: yeah i think that's true so you talked about reading things on Facebook and people making recommendations, stay here, or try this. Will you share with us your top sources of information?
1: Sure. Okay, so I bought the John Browley book. I think everyone does that. Well, most people do that, This is a starting point. On Facebook, I'm a member of um, Camino Portuguesi, a member of Santiago de Compostela Pilgrims, the women's I think I forget the actual name of the the group buddy system for women on the Camino Camigas
0: Camigas yeah
1: Camigas thank you and then there's another one for the Camino Portuguese Camino pilgrims so they're the ones that I tend to look into every so often but the most frequently used one I use is Portuguese Camino I find that to be the richest source of information and uh, people there are really, really helpful in terms of suggestions, you know, right down to things like what brand of shoes should I be wearing and do I take poles? And while I'm on that point, it's, I always think it's really interesting that people say, what brand of shoes should I wear on the, on the Portuguese Camino? And I go, I've never actually answered that, but most people say it's such a personal thing. There's no such thing as the best brand of shoe because you might have narrow feet, wide feet, You might have a different sort of gait. You might want a zero drop shoe. You might want a regular shoe. You might prefer a running shoe, a hiking shoe, waterproof, non-waterproof. So that particular website, that particular forum, I think is really good just in terms of being able to access a lot of information based on other pilgrims' experiences and then deciding, okay, that's something that I want to take on board or, no, it's not anything I want to take on board.
0: It sounds like you've got a good tool in place for sifting through all the information. Yes. There's a lot of information out there.
1: There is. And the other source of information, not specifically about the Camino, but about how best to tackle the Camino physically is to speak to people that sell the outdoor hiking gear. So I needed information and help with choosing uh, a day pack. Again, because I've got back and shoulder problems, I can't just wear anything. I've I've got to have something that sits well on my spine. And then with regard to shoes and the use of poles, those people in the shops are particularly helpful in terms of, well, if you're going to be walking on cobblestones, I suggest you have a more rigid sole. And then when you switch across to a normal bush track or footpath, then maybe just a regular uh, running shoe or trail shoe will be absolutely fine for you. So... The people at those outdoor equipment stores are another source of terrific information, not so much about the Camino, but but about equipment.
0: That's a really great point. There's a lot of expertise at these stores.
1: There is. And in fact, that just reminds me, another point of discussion is the use of poles. And the Portuguese Camino, I understand, is a lot uh, flatter than the French Camino. So there's some debate as to whether or not you should take poles and for me, I'm taking poles mainly because they help with my balance and they also help set up a rhythm. You know, I know that the clack clack apparently can be clack clack sound, and the poles can be annoying to other people. But as long as there are not too many people around me, I think I'll, I'll always use the
0: poles. Do you have the rubber tips that go on the metal pit tips? I do. I do.
1: And even so, I've been walking around in Sydney, and even the rubber tips don't get away from that clack. Well it's, yeah, you did get yeah,
0: you get a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think if you walk in rhythm, after a while, people get used to it. It's when you do things in a syncopated fashion, so that people can't predict when the poles going to hit the pavement next. I think that's when they get upset.
0: Yes, I think also sometimes it sounds like people are mad at the ground. Oh, right. How was your experience when you started using the poles? Did it come easily to you, or did it take some practice? Oh, I, I've
1: used poles for quite some time because I've been a, a keen walker and have you heard of that thing called the Oxfam Trail Walker, which yeah. it, it, basically it's a charity. It's a 100K walk and it, was, it started in Hong Kong and then it moved to different countries around the world and it's basically teams of four that have to complete the 100Ks within 48 hours. But you go through incredible bush tracks and Amazing uh, landscape. It's not on a footpath. It's basically in bush terrain. That's when I was first encouraged to use poles because you'd be going up quite steep paths and coming down steep fire trails, and the poles were very, very good for balancing. And so I've been a big fan of poles for a long, long time. So for the Camino, there was never a question as to whether or not I'd be taking them.
0: Of course, they're coming along.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> they're coming in my hand luggage. I've got the collapsible, they fold into a Z shape, so they're nice and small and compact. And because I'm so small anyway, short, they're quite short, so they'll tuck away neatly into my daypack.
0: I'm with you. I don't walk without poles.
1: Yeah. You don't have to use them all the time. If, you, if you're walking on level land, by all means, just fold them up or tuck them away in your backpack. But as soon as the land becomes uneven and you're doing rock scrambling or something like that, then they're, I find that they're quite helpful.
0: Or even just going uphill, I find they help push so that my legs don't have to do all the work. So my arms, Definitely. my arms help out too, and then my triceps get all built up. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like, woo! Look at me.
1: <laughs> yeah, a great way of
0: getting rid of what we call tuck tuck shop arms. You know, you get the flabby bits under your arms. I am familiar with those. Sadly, <laughs> let me ask you: Are there any questions that I can answer for you? Anything you haven't quite gotten a handle on? At this stage. I think we're
1: relatively well prepared as far as planning is concerned. I think where some issues are going to arise is once we're actually on the trail. I think the idea of how do we prepare for meals is going to be an issue because unlike in Australia, in Portugal and Spain, my understanding is that a lot of the cafes and restaurants and even some of the the equipment of our supermarkets closed down for four hours. In the middle of the day so it's a question of how do we plan for our lunch and our snacks along the way also the issue of water now I'm trying to make my pack as light as I possibly can so I'm thinking I'll just start off with one litre of water whereas I would normally carry two litres of water with me in the hope that one litre will see me between villages or between cafes or between shops so I think you know, any advice you can give me there in terms of how to prepare for nutrition would be
0: really helpful. Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is one of the things that I find the apps are very useful for. The apps will tell you which towns have shops where you can buy food and which ones have a bar. In Portugal, I'm not quite sure what the bar situation is, but in Spain, once you cross into Spain, the bar is the place for everything. It's where you get your coffee or tea in the morning, you get the use of the toilet and Wi-Fi and snack in the afternoon and end of day drink. So the bars are open all day. That's the good news about the bars. They're open morning to evening. What I discovered on my last trip, and I have to tell you, in all the time I've been going to the Camino, I just learned this this year. I don't know how I missed it, but I just learned that to eat my main meal midday, my biggest meal of the day midday, because when the shops close, the restaurants start serving lunch. So the restaurants start serving lunch around one thirty, and they go until about 3.30. So I learned to get my midday meal, have that be the biggest meal. And then in the evening to go to the bar and get a snack and a drink or to go to the shop when it reopens at five o'clock and get a snack there. And so it's really about learning the opening hours and learning to work with the rhythm of their day rather than what we're used to in our own countries. I used to have lunch at noon, especially like you, I was caring for my elderly dad. Dad ate lunch at noon and dinner at six. And that's what I did. But when I get to Spain, I start to find their rhythm. And I find that quite enjoyable once I surrender to it.
1: Oh, that's really good advice. So when in Rome, do as the Romans do, basically.
0: Yes, yes.
1: That will be an interesting change for me because I tend not to eat really big meals anyway. I tend to have lots of little meals throughout the day, so... If it's having a bigger meal in the middle of the day, I'm worried about then going into a food coma and having to sleep it off for an hour or so before I continue the journey. But anyway, I'm sure we'll get used to it.
0: The other way to manage that day is especially on your shorter days, you'll be done walking in time to go get your midday meal oftentimes that would be my goal would be to finish however far I'm walking so that I could even have a late lunch. Sometimes I would have lunch at two or three o'clock because I've finished my walking by then. And then I would go have my meal and then I'd go have a shower and then I'd lie down for a bit. And then a couple hours later, get up and go get a snack and something to drink. All right. Okay. I think that's the fun of the Camino is is learning the rhythm of the day of our host country and finding how being a pilgrim fits into that. And one of the biggest complaints that I've heard on the Camino from pilgrims is that the Spanish don't eat dinner until 10 o'clock at night. Well, the pilgrims want to be in bed by then.
1: Absolutely.
0: What's happened at least in Spain on the Camino Frances is the places that serve the pilgrims have adapted and they now serve a pilgrim meal around seven o'clock and they think we're crazy. They serve us their meal. We, they send us off to bed and then they eat at a normal hour of 10 o'clock. So it's, it's fun. I think it's all part of the experience to work out that rhythm. Mm, mm,
1: Definitely. Did you find there was any antagonism at all towards the pilgrims by the locals in terms of oh the pilgrims are taking over our area we want to be we just want to be left alone and the reason I ask that is because there are some places in Europe so for example Venice which is such a popular destination and I know the locals they appreciate the tourist dollars coming in but every June, July, August it's overrun by by people and I did see a comment where I think in the first or second week, it must be the first week of August, a whole lot of youths doing the pilgrim descended upon Santiago de Compostela, and there was this, always this feeling of we're being overrun, we're being overrun. So did you, did you ever encounter any of that, not antagonism, but perhaps resistance towards the presence of pilgrims?
0: I wouldn't characterize it as resistance. What I have seen is fatigue where Uh, people who serve the pilgrims, especially towards the end of the season, and and I'll say the season is roughly Easter to the end of October. By, I hate to say it, by September, mid-September, the people who serve the pilgrims start to become fatigued. And I think part of that is not all pilgrims are good guests. I see. And so- what I tried to do is be a good guest and be someone who follows the local custom of starting off by saying hello good day, hola buenos dias, hola buenas tardes, rather than just coffee please and uh. to learn a few words of Spanish or Portuguese so that I can communicate in the language that doesn't require additional resources on their part mm-hmm. and just to help out in that way by being a good guest and at the accommodations, I th- I think the albergues, especially if you're working the entire season, it becomes very tiring. And so I think what we can do is look for ways to be good guests.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really good advice. And have you found that since you've changed from staying in albergues all the time to doing a blend of the hostels and the the, the private rooms within albergues, have you found that that experience of needing to be a little bit more considerate has changed?
0: No, I still focus on it. I still make a point to be considerate and try not to have too big of an impact on my room even, not to bring in all the mud if it's raining and to get all the trash into the trash bin. And, you know, just little things. I I actually, confession time, I have worked in hospitality. I worked at two different hostels in the United States and part of my job one day a week was to clean the facility. And so I can see it from the eyes of a housekeeper. And so I try to impact a room in a way that the housekeeper has less work. And so I think just to be considerate of the job that they're doing, hospitality on the Camino is really unique in that the guests stay one night and they're always flowing through and there's always a new group every single night contrast that to something in a, let's call it a normal tourist destination where people come for two to three to five to seven nights, that's less of an impact on your hosts. But what happens with the places on the Camino is every single day they have to hit the reset button and Mm. clean the facility and reset the room and change the linens and clean the bathroom and everything has to be back to zero every single day. Whereas It's a little bit less work if the guests stay multiple nights. And the other thing is when I was in hospitality, I loved that people stayed for several nights because then I could have different conversations. I could get past the conversation of where are you from? Where did you come from today? Where did you start? Are you going to Santiago and how much time do you have? I could get to know them and I could get to share things with them. And it became a mutual interaction rather than just a transaction. Mm -hmm. And I think for hospitality workers, that becomes tiring.
1: It would. You mentioned before that you've done many caminos, but they've always been the Francais. Is there any particular reason why you haven't yet done the Portuguese?
0: Let's see. I I will say this spring I walked the Inglés, which is the one that begins in Ferrol and goes to Santiago in about 115 kilometers. I have been to Porto and I loved Porto. I have... Nothing keeping me from walking the Portuguese route, except a love of the Camino Frances. I've been going for 17 years. To me, it feels like home. It feels like my hometown, a 500-mile-long hometown. And I love it. I've gotten to the point where I have friends in the towns and people who are familiar and who know me and I'm always go to the same places. And so it's more that I love the Frances than that I don't want to love the Portuguese. understand. I'll say maybe one day. (laughs) Because
1: I I definitely want to do the Frances at one stage, but because I only had a two-week timeframe initially, that's why I've chosen that, because I thought I don't want to just do the last 100Ks of the French. I wanted to do the whole of the French
0: experience.
1: Yeah. So I will get there eventually, and I'm sure I'll be in contact with you then to get all the ins and outs of where to go and how to do it.
0: I hope you will. I do understand that the time factor does lead people to choose a route based on how much time they have. And there's something very sweet about feeling as if you're doing a complete or an entire Camino walk, Mm -hmm. having started here and finished in Santiago. There is something to that. The other element is language. I do speak enough Spanish to get by, and my Portuguese is non-existent. I think I know more French than I know Portuguese, and that just means I can order breakfast in French. And so that's that's what's keeping me on the Frances as well, is the language. And it also is why I usually fly into Madrid rather than Paris, because I speak Spanish and not French. So the, the language certainly influences that as well.
1: I see. It's interesting because I've just had some friends who have returned from Spain and Portugal not doing the Camino, but being travelers and explorers. and they were saying that there is more English spoken in Portugal than there is in Spain.
0: I think that's probably true. Hmm.
1: Okay, so I'm not quite as worried because I I think I know enough Spanish to say hello, good night goodbye. My name is Amanda and do you speak English? And uh, I, I think I can point to food if, if that's what I want to order. So I'm not too worried there. And the same thing in Portugal, given the fact they do speak a bit of English. I think I'll be, I'll
0: be okay there. The other thing is just about everybody speaks what I call travel English. All right. Yeah. Many people know the words in English for what you want and not for nothing, but they already know what you want. They know you want a beverage, food, or a place to sleep.
1: Or a baño. A.e. a bathroom.
0: Or a toilet, yes. And interestingly, the word for toilet in Spain anyway is less likely to be baño and more likely to be aseo or servicio. Oh, okay. Yeah. I studied Spanish in California, so I learned a a vocabulary that was from Mexican Spanish. And so I had to learn, learn the Spanish words when I got to Spain. I think
1: I'll be buying a little phrase book before I head out.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Well, this has been fun.
1: I've enjoyed this.
0: I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. I'd like you now to imagine you're in Santiago and you've just completed your 12 day, 14 day walk and you're there and you're finished. What's on your mind? What are you feeling? What are you thinking?
1: I think I will be very emotional I I wouldn't be surprised if I burst into tears saying I've made it. I'm probably going to be thinking I wish I had a bit more time because as it turns out we're actually leaving the next morning for Madrid. I'm probably thinking I wish I had more opportunity to just soak up that experience of having met all of those people along the way and experienced so many emotions along the way as opposed to picking up and then heading up the next morning but I'll also be happy knowing that there are other caminos or portions of caminos that I can do, and I can return, and that it doesn't matter how old I get, there will be a way of doing the camino. If it means relying on luggage transfers, or if it means relying on, you know, perhaps taking an Uber part of the way, then so be it. So, yeah, I, th- I think they're the emotions, and that's the fear. Feel- those are the feelings I'll have when I get there. So. Let me get back to you at the end of October and tell you how, <laughs> how it was.
0: I can't wait to hear. And I, I wish our listeners could see the smile on your face
1: and yours and yours. Too.
0: Yeah. Talking about the Camino is one of my favorite pastimes.
1: Well, I'm, I'm getting caught up in the excitement of it all. I'm speaking to you about it, certainly. And as I said, often I'll log into Facebook and go into the various forums. And when I read about someone who's, as I happen as I happen to do today, I read about somebody who's doing exactly the same route as us. I was so excited because I then wrote to him and I said, look, well, tell me, we're going from La Bruge into Arcos. I've been reading that some people have said that some of the arrows have been removed. Is it well waymarked? Can you give me some pointers? He then put me onto a link. said, so this is how you get from one to the other. Hope you don't get lost. And I thought, oh, that's such... A nice feeling of of giving and participating, you
0: know. The community of pilgrims is remarkable. How much people come together to help each other. And I think that's one of the intoxicating things about the Camino is we spend however much time we spend submerged in the kindness of strangers. Mm -hmm. And then we take that and become the kindness to strangers. It's a remarkable effect of the Camino.
1: Well, that's another funny thing too. This morning, I was on the way back from um, exercise class and there was a girl standing on the corner of a street next to me with a suitcase and a, a phone in her hand. And I said, are you lost? And she said, I need to get to such and such a street. And I said, turn left. And I pointed to her and I thought this could be me in about three weeks' time, but on the reverse.
0: Yes. Yeah. The thing is, you're already on your Camino. You're already in it, on it, involved in it, living it. I personally believe the Camino begins when you say yes.
1: I've heard that and I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I think so.
0: Yeah. Amanda, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's been my pleasure.
1: I should be thanking you because you've just fired up my enthusiasm and made me so look forward to our upcoming trip.
0: I'm so happy to hear that. I wish you a beautiful Camino journey and I will see you out there one of these days. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nancy. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks.
0: I hope you enjoyed our time with Amanda and all the great tips she shared with us about getting ready to walk the Camino Portugués. Now I will share with you this episode's top tip which comes to you from Santiago de Compostela where Amanda will finish her walk. Santiago is an amazing city set in the beautiful area of Galicia. It's the endpoint for all major roads of the Camino de Santiago. And in this spirit, Santiago is home to a beautiful and incredibly comprehensive Museum about the Camino pilgrimage. The museum is perfectly located in a small plaza on the south side of the cathedral, at the bottom of a large set of stairs that lead to the doors of the cathedral through which the public enter. If you'd like to learn more about the history and the symbols of the Camino, about St. James, the city of Santiago, and the cathedral, and the origins of the pilgrimage, stop by the Museo de Peregrinación and spend some time working through the several floors of interpretive displays. Conveniently, everything is in three languages, Castellano, Gallego, and English. The museum is open six days a week. That's every day except Mondays. The entry fee is only €2.40, But if you bring along your credencial or pilgrim's passport, you'll pay the reduced rate of 1 euro 20. Or you may pay nothing at all if you happen to go on a Saturday afternoon when entry is free. This isn't the only museum in Santiago, by the way. A visit to the tourist office or Turismo de Santiago will yield a bigger list of things to do then you might have time for finding the turismo office is half the fun it's located close to the cathedral on one of the narrow streets in the historic center that are filled with bars restaurants shops and of course pilgrims and other people enjoying the city there you can pick up a map of the city and ask all your questions about how to get the most out of your time there That's it for this episode. I wish you a beautiful time in Santiago and on your Camino journey. If you would like to know when upcoming episodes of this podcast are available, please click on the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app or player of choice. Until next time, bye for now. you like to share your story of getting ready to walk the Camino de Santiago and receive some personalized guidance on your planning and preparations? If you have not yet walked a Camino and would like to be a guest on this podcast, please email nancy at thecaminoexperience.com or go to the website thecaminoexperience.com for more information.